HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit wholefoodsmarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. I want to talk about one piece of legislation that is arguably most impactful to our food system, and one that touches almost every aspect of the food policy work happening in this country right now. I'm talking, of course, about the Farm Bill, the behemoth legislation that is up for authorization in 2018. We will undoubtedly be talking a lot more about this as the bill winds its way through the legislative process over the coming months. But to kick off our coverage, I want to first provide a bit of a primer, as it's certainly pretty, let's just say, not easy to navigate. Joining the show to give us an overview of the bill, including what it entails, how it affects the lives of everyday Americans, and what's at stake, is Paul Wolf, Senior Policy Specialist at the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, an alliance of over 100 grassroots organizations that advocate for federal policy reform to advance the sustainability of agriculture, food systems, natural resources, and rural communities. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, can you, let's start at the very beginning, um, way back when. Can you kind of give us a, a super brief history of the Farm Bill? When was it first enacted and why? So the, the Farm Bill, as we know it, is a, is, uh, has been an evolution over many years. But uh, to go back really to the beginning um, the, with the first Farm Bill was passed in 1933. And at that time, it was really focused just on farmers, um, it's it's much different than it was than it is today. Um, but it was really focused on trying to help them through the depression and other economic hard times, um, and and prop up prices uh, for crops. Um, back then, there were 6.8 million farmers, um, you know, representing 25 percent of the population living in rural America. 
and and so and they were going through hard times, and so uh, Congress passed the first farm bill um, to prop up prices, and they did this through a combination of of price supports and also uh, planting restrictions. So, uh, you know, it, they actually paid farmers to not plant in order to help um, help with prices. And you know that was the way it went for many uh, many years, and 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 um, in different you know forms and different tweaks and, and different programs that are uh, down in the in the details. Uh, but you know that brings you up to 1970s um, when things started to change, um, um, and we started to see other things come in and start to see the farm bill develop as we know it today. Uh, 1973 was the first time the farm bill included food stamps. As they were known, now it's the SNAP program, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Mm-hmm. And in 1977 is when that really came to. We all know, or may have heard, that uh, Senator McGovern from South Dakota and Senator Dole from Kansas got together and kind of pushed, uh, as we know it today, the, the farm bill um, with food stamps and uh, farm and rural development programs. They actually. Uh, Today, those food stamp programs, uh, SNAP, represents 80% of the farm bill funding. Uh, so as, as we moved on, we now have this, this bill that's together and uh, with the, that kind of uh, rural-urban uh, 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 detente that, mm-hmm. was, that came together. And uh, we moved along, and then we came to 1985 when we started looking at conservation programs and when conservation programs as we know them today were really... Um, added to the farm bill, and okay, so we have so so today are the major tenants still conservation, SNAP or federal nutrition assistance, and then the and then agricultural policy or what? How would you basically are there three major tenants, and if so, what is the kind of third bucket that relates to agricultural policy today? So it's really it's it's conservation, it's um, rural development, it's nutrition programs, which is that big bucket that makes 80%, and, and farm programs. Okay. Um, okay. And then what, um, what are some examples of the farm programs then? Like, is it still, do we still uh, pay farmers not to plant, uh, planting restrictions, or is that something that was phased out over time? Yeah, Congress has tried to, over the, over the decades, and especially in the last 35 years, to uh, move away from programs that that people consider distorting or, or really impact markets, and especially related to foreign trade and our trade agreements and the WTO having to um, not, uh, ha- not distort uh, prices in that way. So uh, that all culminated when we had something called direct payments where we actually paid farmers um, based on their land and what they used to plant but not, uh, not whether they planted a crop. Um, but the, the, the two programs today uh, that, it, that are the main program uh, you know, pay have prices, and if prices essentially go below that for crops, that the farmers get a payment. They're a, a bit more complicated, but than that, but that's the main part. The other part of it um, that's that's really come into its own since the '90s is crop insurance, and this is the program that costs about eight billion dollars a year, um, subsidizes farmers' crop insurance payments at sixty percent, and and um, is is the other big. Uh, part of the farm subsidy program. Okay, so we're going to talk about that um, in uh, a few minutes, but you mentioned before that the nutrition um, 
assistance, you know, component of the farm bill represents 80% of the total funding. What about these, what about the other kind of major tenants? What portion of funding is dedicated um, to those other buckets? So the other 20% 20 of of programs, uh, about half of that is actually crop insurance. Um, 20% is commodity programs I just mentioned. Uh, another almost 30% is conservation. And then you have everything else, which is 4%, which is rural development, um, food safety, trade, um, forest service, all of these things that the, the other things that USDA does. Food safety? That in the farm bill? That well, First of all, I think that we should talk about the term <laughs> farm bill because it seems like it entails way more than just agriculture or farm policy. Has there been any calls to make that this name a little bit more accurate? Well, the, over the years, the farm bill, you know, is the colloquial term that we use to describe it. Um, each bill has had its own um, unique name, um, often some of them unintelligible or undecipherable quite long. Um, you know, at different times, depending on who's in charge, they've been called the Food, Jobs, and Energy Act and the... Um, uh, you know, Farm Security and Rural Investment Act, the Agricultural Risk Protection Act. So they've had all kinds of different names. We call, they call it the Farm Bill, but you are absolutely correct. Is the Farm Bill today is, is, is kind of a Swiss Army knife, um, you know, for rural communities, for urban um, health and food safety and, and many different things. And, you know, a lot of people don't know the Forest Service uh, that manages millions of acres of land is part of USDA as well. What, what does it, uh, you know, entail specifically with our food safety program? What kind of components, uh, what does that look like? Sure. The main, the main part for USDA is, is that, that as part of the farm bill is the um, food safety inspection service that, that is in all um, animal uh, meat processing plants. Uh, you know, FDA, who people often associate with, with um, food safety, is um, in charge of um, um, the fruits and vegetables and, and kind of that end of the spectrum, but meat is under the purview of, of USDA. And so they have inspectors in all those plants um, uh, monitoring food and doing that. Uh, and so uh, they, they do the inspection of meat, but they also work with farmers of all types to improve and to deal with food safety uh, on the farm. And it's something we've advocated for since the passage of another bill uh, a few years ago to implement food safety uh, procedures back to the farm uh, is, is having USDA in its marketing and its, in its farmer assistance part to do something uh, called the Food Safety Outreach Program um, that we advocate for that, um, that actually helps do cost share and helps farmers, uh, especially local and regional um, direct-to-market farming systems uh, understand what they need to do to ensure food safety when, you know, these are the operations that can't afford to hire a full-time food safety officer like the biggest, um, you know, commodity farms can. Mm-hmm. And so they, USDA has a role to play to help those farmers ensure that they are able to comply. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about the legislative process. So um, we're going to get a little bit wonky here, but what is the what is the process, um, including authorization or re- reauthorization, and what does it entail, and how often does it happen? So the farm bill traditionally has been done every five years. The last one was uh, 
passed uh, near the beginning of uh, 2014, February of 2014. Mm-hmm. And that farm bill expires at the end of September of 2018. So we're kind of end, coming to the end of that cycle. And this is a really critical time that you're, that, so it's important that you're talking about this now because we are kind of at the start of the process um, to reauthorize this farm bill uh, you know, in time to get, to get it done by, the tw- by that date in 2018. And that's really important because the farm bill is kind of unique in a couple ways. If we don't pass a farm bill by um, September of 2018, there's a couple things that happen. Um, the biggest one is we revert to 1940s era permanent laws that, um, that don't even contemplate crops like soybeans because they weren't grown back then. So they have, it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have a bunch of programs that support local and regional food systems like the Value Added Producer Grant Program and the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Development Program and others that um, would end and don't have any way to continue. Um, so we're in the start right now where um, members of Congress are introducing pieces of legislation called marker bills to lay out their ideas and start to debate about the farm bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Senate, Senate uh, the jurisdiction for the farm bill is under the Agriculture Committee in the House and in the Senate. And they've been having hearings over the last year to hear from farmers They've been having field hearings. Our organization has been having uh, meetings and listening sessions with farmers all over the country, and other groups are doing the same thing. So this last year has been kind of the information collection and um, preparation. We're now moving into the phase where um, there's pieces of legislation being introduced with people of members of Congress making their priorities known. Mm -hmm. And then we'll head into um, probably early next year having... um, um, seeing legislative text, seeing people, the committees writing their bills, having um, something called a markup mm-hmm. where uh, senators and congressmen have the opportunity to offer amendments uh, to the bill and get their priorities included. Okay. Uh, that, and, and it will go through the whole uh, legislative process there and hopefully be finished by September. <laughs> and this is a type of legislation where the House and the Senate both provi- uh, propose their own version of the bill and then there is a like reconciliation process? Yeah, the, the the you know the the old um, how a bill becomes a law. Everybody's seen that Schoolhouse Rock uh, piece. Uh, you know, they, I feel like they, not they, enough people actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they so they would each um, normally come up with their own bill and then uh, go to something called a conference, where members from each House and Senate are appointed to a conference and they negotiate the differences out, um, vote on it again, and then it goes back to the House and Senate to be. Um, to be passed and and signed by the president. Um, mm-hmm. That is the normal process. You know, as as I'm sure everybody's seen, the legislative process is is not re- quite working like that these days. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that so um, things are looking up for this. <laughs> yes. All You're, right. It's, yeah. It's traditionally, kind of cons- been considered one of the biggest bipartisan pieces of legislation out there. Hmm. Um, so we'll see how it goes, and um, that's the historical context that everybody wants to get it done. Um, and you are, and having this this big hammer of the expiration in September provides a lot of incentive to to work on this. I mean, so in general, like we've been talking about, we're in like very partisan, almost tribal times with our kind of the political parties. So in terms of ideology, do you think that um, I mean, generally speaking, does the farm bill fall within party lines? 
It, uh, the farm bill generally is much more related to geography than party. Okay. Um, so urban, rural? Urban, rural being the most notable because the, 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 you know, the detente the is that the, the urban um, members, who are much many of them, mm-hmm. um, would support the farm bill and support that rural policy in exchange for support for the uh, food stamps and, and SNAP uh, nutrition assistance programs. Mm-hmm. And then we also have... Um, you know, north-south, southern commodities like rice and cotton that are not grown in the northern climes uh, have different um, requirements and wants and needs than uh, your soy and corn and wheat farmers. Um, those are those, t- those Title I commodity programs, you know, we mentioned um, and how that money is split and how the support is, is organized. Uh, we also have, um, you know, specialty crop producers, which are specialty crops are what we kind of um, they have a specific definition, but it's fruits and vegetables, essentially. Um, you know, a lot are grown in California, uh, in Oregon and Washington on the coast, and in, in Michigan and, and in Florida, but not so much in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And so there's, and, you know, everybody has different things in the Northeast. Um, you know, land is, land availability for farms is a huge issue. And uh, they don't use crop insurance and in those commodity programs very much, uh, but they're very worried about land issues. So there's, there's lots of um, regional um, uh, issues that, that take place in the Farm Bill that, are, that, that don't really fall on party lines other than kind of the urban-rural divide. So I think, I mean, I don't know if I asked you this at the top, but how big is this, uh, is this legislation? And what is the, and by the way, I promise this is my last kind of wonky question, although that's probably not true. But like, okay, so how big is this bill overall? And then in terms of funding, is this like at the end of every four or five periods, is this where, you know, where all of the funding is allocated and approved? Or is there a different process for um, funding versus policy? Uh, so the farm bill, uh, you know, is is um, around uh, half a billion dollars um, per so so it's it's actually closer to it's more than that but <laughs> um, it's it's a lot <laughs> uh, it is a huge it a huge program we're talking we're talking over 10 years um, mm-hmm. we're talking closer to a hundred billion dollars billion billion okay so it's a big bill you're like billion with a B. <laughs> yep. Okay. And then how does the, the process work? Is it so it's um, allocated every four years or does it kind of come up for like, not, I guess, a reauthorization every every year to continue? Or is it just it, every four years, five years? It continues every for the full five years of the farm bill. Uh, and uh, there are programs, and this hopefully doesn't get too wonky. No, no, uh, I, I like it. <laughs> yeah, there's. There's programs that are called mandatory programs, and there's discretionary programs. Um, okay. One discretionary program that we, we follow a lot is called the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, SARE. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been around since 1988. It's kind of the premier research program on cover crops and other sustainable farming techniques. Okay. Um, it's discretionary program. It author- has an authorization for $60 million each year, but we have to advocate every year um, with the appropriations committee in in the House and the Senate to get funding for it. If, if they didn't provide it each individual year, it would have no funding. So certain components are up for, um, like, refunding every year. Yeah. Okay. And then other components are mandatory. So 
those components like the crop insurance program and those commodity programs, uh, the Farm Bill lays out a formula and a mechanism for those to provide money um, based on price or, or for crop insurance, 60% subsidy to the farmer and then you know, a billion dollars of subsidies to the crop insurance companies. And, and those programs, they have an estimate in that Farm Bill but they cost what they cost. And so they are, they, um, like the, um, in conservation programs, um, the CSP program is allowed to, to enroll 10 million acres um, of land in this conservation program. So these programs kind of do it by formula. And so their costs vary over time. Um, crop insurance gets more expensive as commodity prices go up. Uh, and, and, and the, Commodity programs um, get less expensive as commodity prices go up. So th- these programs kind of um, they cost what they cost, but they they and and the ultimate example of this is actually the, the nutrition assistance program SNAP, mm-hmm. um, which provides benefit to everybody that qualifies. Okay. There's no cap on on the cost, which is why um, there's a lot of concern out there about. Um, people hear this term block granting snap to the state mm-hmm. where it would have a cap because it isn't currently capped so it costs whatever it costs if you if you qualify for for snap then you qualify right um, so it can go up it can fluctuate yes um okay so i want to um take a really quick commercial break but when we get back i want to kind of dive into detail a bit more about the commodity uh program portion of the farm bill um, and then, you know, what's next in terms of process. Stay tuned. Great. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients. Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Paul Wolf, Senior Policy Specialist at the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. Before the break, I said I want to talk a little bit more about the commodity program portion, and so let's do that. Um, there was a big focus on changes made to the commodity title and federal crop insurance program in the last iteration. Um, can you break down in a little bit more detail what those changes were and how they affect farmers? And, and by the way, whether or not they fa- affect all farmers or just a specific subset of farmers? Sure, sure. So um, the one thing to keep in mind, I think, about your last part of that question um, before you even delve into this is that um, commodity programs are really focused on a handful of um, staple crops, 
corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, um, cotton. Uh, these are the programs that they, they traditionally have focused on. So um, your specialty crop growers, the fruits and vegetable growers, uh, and even livestock don't have access to any of the commodity programs. When it comes to crop insurance, um, there is a, it is uh, a wider array of crops. Um, there are over 100 uh, crop insurance policies available, but most of those are only available in very specific areas uh, where there's a critical mass uh, for those crops grown. So, And there's also a, a type of crop insurance that's kind of like the Cadillac of crop insurance. It's only available for about 15 crops. So one thing to keep in mind is that all of the, the commodity title programs and the crop insurance programs are, are really provide the most benefits to a small uh, number of, of crops, and, and and that's something we're working on. But um, so, well, why? I mean, my first question is why? <laughs> why doesn't um, it affect you know everybody, especially since uh, you know you would think that growing fruits and vegetables in this country is a good thing, should be a good thing. Sure, I mean, I think the the Part of its history, um, you know, these were the these were the crops that were grown um, uh, traditionally for food, but also for feed. And and much of the corn and um, soy today, the vast majority of it is going to feed for animals, um, mm-hmm. not for human consumption. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that actually. Yeah, it's it's uh, it is it is the vast majority um, um, corn to cattle, uh, soy to chickens. Um, there's the the amount of food. Um, grown for human consumption is uh, acreage you know committed to human consumption is actually just a, a small segment um, so that, so that was you know the when we had to grow historically had to grow these crops on vast um, numbers of land to grow enough um, so that you know some of its history uh, some of its ensuring you know uh, adequate prices and a food supply um, but it's also you know as we've much of it is also exported um, so it's kind of a, you know, it's a price, they're, they're a price support program. They're, they're there to help uh, farmers, um, you know, ensure that they're able to continue farming. Just so a specific set of farmers. Right. And also, you know, in historically, um, especially crop farmers have not necessarily wanted uh, these kind of programs. Uh, you know, they remember the farm bill was originally passed to help ensure farmers got an adequate price mm-hmm. uh, because they were in such dire economic today you know that's not such that's not necessarily the case um, but you know fruits and vegetables cost a lot to grow and um, and if you have if you provide um, support and and subsidies for these Theory, one of the fears is that more people would come in to grow those crops and could actually depress prices. And so um, it's kind of like how it's kind of backwards. You know, we're, we're providing uh, commodity supports to uh, corn and soybeans and these commodity crops uh, in, in order to help raise prices. But in effect, we're actually encouraging farmers to uh, pull out shelter belts and pull out fences and grow more of these crops which then we have to try to find trade agreements and and ethanol and other ways to use all the cro- crops that we're growing. So we're growing and, too much. <laughs> we're growing, growing too much, and you see, especially crop growers don't want subsidies because they worry about people growing too much and depressing prices. Uh, but they have to deal with, I mean, don't they have to deal with, through our free trade agreements, um, like an excess of cheaper produce coming to the market and competing with them anyway? You know that is historically, if, if, if 
as people may have heard during the um, there's a debate going on with the um, president's attempt to renegotiate NAFTA. Mm-hmm. Um, we just with, covered that last episode, by the way. So. <laughs> okay. Our fingers on the pulse. <laughs> yeah. So everybody knows about it. Everybody's an expert now. Um, and you have you have uh, you know historically different parts of the country fill different niches for fresh vegetables. Um, but a lot of it is coming in from uh, Mexico um, now because they have cheaper labor, and and at certain times of the year that allows, and because of free trade agreements, you know they are allowed to bring that in. We're essentially sending our corn and soybeans to Mexico, and they're sending us you know fresh fruits and vegetables in that deal, at least on the agriculture side. Mm-hmm. Um, and but a lot of today, a lot of companies that grow. Um, out in California and the West Coast have operations in both both countries, so um, they're actually, um, you know, depending on the season, they're 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 growing in both areas. So, but but what about like small fam- family farmers? I mean, I typically think specialty crops, aka vegetables. I think of more small family farmers relying on on those types of farms, small and mid-sized farms, to produce right. um, those crops. Is that inaccurate? Oh well, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, you know, a large percentage of those crops come from, um, at least on the fresh market, are coming from California mm-hmm. um, and Florida, and apples from the and pears from the Pacific Northwest, um, and at different times of the year, different different small areas of the country, um, but a large percentage are coming from California. So, um, you know, we we obviously support um, and and want to see more diverse and regional food systems. And, and that's a big part of the Farm Bill as well that we're trying to promote now uh, is the support and infrastructure um, for those, those regional uh, and local systems so that those small and mid-scale farmers can access uh, their local markets because that is one of the biggest challenges is either not having enough to, to meet local demand or not being able to get access to, the, to markets in an efficient way to compete against the highly efficient and highly mechanized um, and um, systems the major growing areas. So what about, I want to talk a little bit more about this because we have been seeing kind of a consolidation in the farming industry, especially my understanding is around some of these bigger commodity crops. So um, is that accurate? And then how can the farm bill really uh, kind of encourage a shift away from this kind of consolidation? Sure. So there's two two things. I mean, uh, the farm bill does contribute to that consolidation. Um, How? The, the commodity programs uh, that are only available for a small number of crops uh, funnel farmers towards growing those crops. The crops with the most beneficial payments are what your banker wants you to grow and, and what the government is telling you to grow. So we focus a lot on the, on the crop insurance program. Uh, there's, there's this type of crop insurance uh, called revenue insurance, and it, it, the details are not that important, but it essentially... It provides kind of a gold standard um, uh, protection for price and yield uh, problems for farms, and it's only available for about 15 crops. So those 15 uh, crops are what uh, farmers are being kind of steered to. Uh, Their bankers are saying, well, what has the best crop insurance? What is the best risk protection from droughts? Mm -hmm. It's those crops. And and then when you have a situation where... uh, you know, you have another crop you want to grow because you have a market for it. You have a buyer. It's good for your farm. 
Um, we often talk about this as a three uh, crop rotation. So corn and soybeans, very common. Farmers grow corn one year, grow soybeans the next. If you add a small grain like uh, barley or oats to that rotation, there are beneficial soil health um, things. There's, it can help with disease cycle prevention. Uh, but if that third crop doesn't have the same kind of crop insurance that corn and soybeans does that is as generous, it's at a disadvantage. And that's one way we talk about that, 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 that these programs um, uh, put these crops at a certain disadvantage. Another way um, that contributes to the consolidation is that farmers can capitalize uh, these payments uh, into, their, into their farm, um, essentially uh, helping to provide them a guaranteed level of revenue. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is the big farms, if you're already big and you get these generous crop insurance subsidies and you get payments from Title I, you can, you can, you know, it helps you avoid having to pay costs on other things around your farm, other expenses, and you have more money to buy more land. Um, there was recently an article in a big um, uh, national newspaper mm-hmm. about a, a farmer in Kansas that has 30,000 acres, um, uh, which is a huge, huge farm. Yeah. And he said it blatantly, he's like, I don't know how a beginning farmer in my area or a mid-scale farmer is going to be able to compete with me to buy land. Right. He's able to leverage his size and leverage the government programs to outbid anybody else for those for that land so the big get bigger. Yeah. I This is maybe a misconception. So so basically, uh, specialty crop farmers are kind of cut out from this. They're very much disincentivized from um, either, from mostly from entering the market, it sounds like. Um, I do think, however, there is a misconception that farmers and maybe um, all farmers get painted within, with this brush, but that like farmers are getting so much money from the government, almost arguably too much money, and this definitely extends to and... Um, you know, it, it includes especially crop farmers. What do you say about that? Like, do you is that is that is there some truth to that, or would you say that that's like completely false? Uh, like many things, I think it's somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, the the we often advocate for means testing and caps on programs, mm-hmm. so that the largest farmers who are who are most able to internalize risk and 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 don't need as much assistance uh, are not allowed in the programs. Uh, but we do think that they, they're important. Uh, subsidized crop insurance, you know, right now uh, about 85% um, of those commodities, those corn, soybean are co- acres are coverage, but only about 26% of, um, of um, vegetables and about 60% of fruit. So those fruit and vegetable farmers do get some support. Mm-hmm. They get support. Some of them get crop insurance support, some of them, and they get support by research dollars. Okay. That the federal government provides to help them address disease risks and and things like that, um, but you know that is that is not direct subsidies. So you know I think it is a misconception. Which means which means all, in this context, sorry to interrupt you, but direct subsidies mean they don't just get the dollars. What do they? How do they unlock the, that funding? It's through through subsidy through uh, premium subsidy support for crop insurance, and it's through research. Okay. So that university okay. research that's done on their behalf. Yes. Yeah, okay. Got it. Um, but uh, so uh, so we kind of say you know these programs are important. Um, smaller farmers, mid-scale farmers, you know the middle the middle of the road. What people traditionally think of a farm, uh, you know, a diversified farm, 
uh, you know, livestock and crops do get some support. But what's happening is that the, the, the vast majority of support is going to a small percentage at the largest level. And if you were able to address that, I think that it would make the programs more defensible to the public. I think mm-hmm. what you, you are, you're saying, the public perception is, is, is out there, and it is, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but if we are able to target those supports and, and, and not allow them to go to that, that top 5%, um, you know, we can really address that, that perception and, and really bring it to, to reality and perception, I think, into line. Um, and there's a lot of good things, you know, a lot of other things that, are, that the Farm Bill does that provide funding for farmers that have major, major benefits for water quality, um, rural development, things like that, conservation programs that, you know, are helping us try to address the Toledo water issue and the dead zone in the Gulf. Um, those do cost billions of dollars, but they have benefits well beyond the farm. Um, here's another, I think, issue that I we've been talking about um, on this show, and it is the um, maybe fact that there's not a whole lot of um, coordination amongst some of these smaller and mid-size specialty crop growers, and that, in fact, there's a lot of infighting, and that kind of leads to a, a lack of an ability to really, like, advocate and lobby for um, more federal dollars or more just kind of support programs. Is this something that you found to be true, and how do you kind of, how do we address that issue, and is there is there room in the Farm Bill to do so? Yeah, I, I think there is. I mean, or there is ability to do so. Um, our organization, we're made up of over 100 um, organizations all over the country, um, regionally based, farmer based. Um, we did multiple listening sessions uh, to come up with our agenda for the 2014 Farm Bill, which we uh, released a couple weeks ago. It's about 130 pages of, of the recommendations um, that all of our members uh, have come around, come together, and to, to um, work with their members of Congress and to uh, push for. We also uh, recently um, had introduced um, Congresswoman Pingree from Maine, um, Congressman Fortenberry from Nebraska, and Congressman Maloney from uh, the Hudson Valley in New York came together to introduce the Farms Act, the Local Food and Regional Market Supply Act. Uh, so, you know, there is um, there is consensus, and there is there is an effort to move forward and to uh, advocate for the local and regional food system and, and beginning farmers and social disadvantaged farmers in this farm bill. So, uh, you know, we, there may be disagreement, but I think that we're all moving in the same direction. And what is the role specifically of state and, and local governments to encourage this? Or is it just sort of all happening at the federal level? Well, we, we focus on the federal level, but there, you know, the, the local, the state and local are an amazing incubator for the ideas that can go national. Um, there, we are pushing something called individual development counts, which are a way for uh, to match public funding with farmers' funding to help beginning farmers get started mm-hmm. and give them financial counseling and get their farm up and going. Um, that's an idea that started at the at the state level okay. um, in a few different states. The states are the the incubators of ideas that, if they work, then we can try to to um, expand them and work them on a, on a national scale. Um, 
I should have probably asked this a little bit earlier and definitely mentioned it in the introduction, but to what extent does the bill, this farm bill, affect um, the lives of everyday Americans? Uh, in, in many different ways. I think we, we touched on it a little bit, uh, but it, you know, food safety, and it, you know, if you eat mm-hmm. um, uh, meat and it, it has been inspected by USDA, uh, if you are um, you are eating uh, fruits and vegetables, you know it's probably uh, been supported by some sort of research at the at USDA or funded USDA funded research to develop new varieties and to, to fight disease. Uh, you know if you um, if you've been to the national forest um, and you like to hike, you have been on land that USDA manages. If you have been out to um, the, uh, a country cidery or a winery, uh, a farm brewery, if you've gone to any of these, there's a good chance that uh, that they were helped to develop that idea and to bring that business to the to um, fruition with a with the assistance of USDA. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways um, that this works and 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 impacts the everyday life. Um, okay, so I have time for one more question, but um, basically kind of related to that in terms of how it affects people. How are you working to, you know, energize um, everybody and, and to, to pay attention to these issues? Because as we know, we live in a un, un, unprecedented political times right now. And there's just like a lot of noise happening on a lot of issues that some people think are frankly more important. So how are you working to... Um, just like raise these issues amongst just everyday people um, and get them to kind of care about right. all of these really, really important uh, aspects of the bill. Well, I think you mentioned this at the beginning. Farm bill can be kind of a, a wonky, uh, um, hard to hard nut to crack kind of thing. But uh, I think our efforts is, you know, being on, on a podcast like this is, is one of the ways we're trying to get the word out um, about things like the Farms Act and the Beginning Farmers and Rancher Opportunity Act, we our theory of change is around um, leveraging our members all over the country to talk about and rally around um, bills in Congress that our champions here are have introduced. We have one on local food, and we have one for beginning farmers, and and, and talking about those two bills, and and asking people to go out and talk to their members of Congress and asking them to co-sponsor these two pieces of legislation. And and um, and doing that through through our members, uh, and you know the, the farm bill is. I think why you're interested in, in where we are now is that as we get closer to that end date, um, interest grows. Mm-hmm. But but um, we really do need to to talk more about how it impacts um, not just rural America and farmers, you know how it impacts um, suburban and urban America, and not just through the food stamp program, but through the availability of um, locally and sustainably produced healthy foods uh, and, and how we do that. 
Certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're going to have to leave it there, but I do want to say I would love to invite you back. We, you know, this was a wonderful primer uh, for all of our listeners. And then moving forward, I love, I would love to kind of, you know, delve into the, um, you know, your organization's platform specifically um, for the, for this upcoming bill and, and what they all mean. So to be continued. <laughs> Happy to do it. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks so much, Paul. Thanks. Okay, for more information about NSAC and its Farm Bill campaigns, um, you can go to www.sustainableagriculture.net. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support and to our fabulous show intern, Hannah Weiss. Also want to give a big shout-out to the best engineer ever, Peter Hirsch. Uh, show music is by Tim Archer, and all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and uh, leave us some comments. Let us know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.